0: Well, it's great to see you this morning, guys. Um, I know the obstacles that you have to overcome on December 26th to get out of cozy beds and make it to church. Um, I, for one, I'm probably 75% Velveeta today, and the other 25% is sugar. So for me, it was personally very difficult to get up. But yet, we are here, um, and uh, the Word of God still speaks and so we, we have this privilege um, of opening it this morning and, uh, and seeing what the Lord has for us. And so with, with that said, you guys can take out your Bibles. And we're actually going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to take out your Bibles or open up your phones. Flip over to Revelation 21. We're going to be in 21 through 22. And so what, what do you preach after Christmas? You know, we have, we've had this whole week of, of kind of building up to the birth of Christ. And we've, we've talked about just this journey through the scriptures where we've been able to dig into uh, really tracing the, the storyline of the scriptures. We've looked at, at Christ being... Uh, Foretold of in Genesis chapter 3, when we see this seed that's going to come and it's going to crush the head of the serpent, that's going to trample over death and over sin and over all that plagues us. And then we've seen uh, the, the sun being uh, foretold in Isaiah, in both Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. And then even on Christmas Eve, we, we see this uh, picture of this king who's going to rule and who's going to reign and who's going to defeat sin and death. And then on Christmas morning, we, our, our minds are turned towards the birth of Christ. And so where do you go from there? How Isn't that the climax uh, of the whole story? And, and really what I want us to, to be able to dig into a little bit this morning is, is to just address the rest of the story, right? We, we've got uh, Jesus coming on the scene in the gospels in the New Testament. And then we have this unfolding plan of, of the church, of God's people throughout the rest of the, the New Testament. And then we get to the book of Revelation where we're able to see uh, the, the end of the story, this, this sort of uh, almost second climax of the storyline of the gospel, when we see what's going to happen when Christ returns, when Christ comes this second time, right? We've even talked about how we're, we're kind of in this second advent now as we wait for the return of Christ. And so we, we look here in Revelation 21 and we're gonna get this morning a picture of of the sun in all of his splendor. We're gonna get this picture of Jesus in all of his splendor in the new heavens and in the new earth. Whenever Christ comes back, when he takes us home to be with him, we have this incredible picture of who Jesus is for us then. And so we're gonna to get to chew on that a little bit this morning, um, and I hope be able to walk away uh, with some sense of awe from beholding the sun in all of his splendor. So Revelation 21, we're gonna jump around a little bit um, and I'm not, I'm not cutting things out or editing, but I'm, I'm skipping the description of the New Jerusalem because it's very detailed and many of you are not architectural majors. So we will skip past that. I encourage you to read in your own time. We're gonna be Revelation 21. We'll be in one through eight and then we'll jump down to verse 22 in 21 and we'll go through chapter 22, verse five. Let, just let these words, even in Revelation 21 through 22, rest on you this morning, because this is a, a section of scripture that I, every time I read, I, I just kind of think, that's in there. That's for us. Like, this, is, this is actually what we're headed towards. And so let that rest on you. Revelation 21, verse one, here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Picking up in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, gilding its fruit each month. God, we thank you that this word is true. God, we ask that you would drive it down deep into our hearts this morning. Lord, that we would be attentive to the great hope that is contained here in these verses. Lord, we thank you for this privilege of having a vision of what is to come when we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth if we are the redeemed God. We thank you for all of this. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I don't don't know... Uh, what your thoughts on virtual reality are. Um, I don't know if you're scared of it. Uh, Maybe you've seen the Minority Reports. Maybe you've seen some of these movies about what could go wrong with virtual reality. And there's a a great deal of skepticism maybe on your part as to what is this gonna look like in the future? Or maybe you're somebody who, you you really just wanna embrace it kind of with both arms and you just see it as a really cool way to play video games and you, you've played it on the PS4, you've used the Oculus, they have about 10,000 devices now you can utilize for virtual reality. But I think what, whatever side of that spectrum you fall in, there's clear, it's clear that there's a, a staying power to, to virtual reality kind of coming onto the scene in our culture. That there's, it's, it's really kind of proliferating all over. And it's interesting because it's more than video games now. It's being utilized in all of these different areas uh, of, of society. And so that, that gives us this idea that it is, it does have this, this staying power. And what I find interesting is that it's now moving into the, the category of giving people experiences of awe. And so it's being seen as this technology that can be used to kind of raise people out of their situation. You know, maybe it's someone who doesn't have the financial means to go visit the Grand Canyon, and so they can instead utilize virtual reality to, to try to capture what this experience of awe would actually be like. There's some staying power, and people are adopting this on a wide scale. And there's, there's this interesting uh, study that has even been done. And it has incredibly technical language. I didn't understand 90% of what I read. But the title of it is, Are You Awed Yet? How Virtual Reality Gives Us Awe and Goosebumps. And and I found something interesting in this. And it was this, the authors of the study, they wrote this. They said, awe experiences remain rare in our everyday lives and rarer in lab environments. We posit that virtual reality may help to make self-transcendent and potentially transformative experiences of awe more accessible to individuals. They go on to write, they say, individuals in awe often do not fully understand their experiences in the moment, but they will make changes to their mental models to comprehend the scale of the situation afterward. And they will then stress the potential of these awe-inspiring experiences to be among the most powerful, personal, transformational experiences. What does all of that mean? Essentially, what the writers of this study are saying is that this technology is giving people this opportunity to have experiences of awe that are transformative in their lives, that they're able to, to transcend in some way their own particular experiences and in doing so are able to experience some level of transformation in their lives. And I think they're onto something to a certain degree. I think they're onto something, but I think the mode with which they're understanding transformation, that it could happen in some sort of real way through utilizing this technology, it misses out on what really happens when we experience Awe from ultimate reality. Right? When we actually experience awe ourselves when we're face to face with the Grand Canyon, not in this mediated way through virtual reality. And then for our purposes today, the the really the transformational power of awe, whenever we think about this ultimate reality of, of heaven, when we think about the ultimate reality of heaven. There's this sense that we can think on heaven, that we can think on even these verses that we've read this morning, and that in in looking to this and being in awe of this, in awe of the splendor of Jesus, that it can in some way transform us as Christians. I wanna wanna put forth that that is absolutely the case, that the new heavens and the new earth, in thinking on these things, it has this power, that this awe and this wonder that we can have, it can lead to transformation for us here. And so through being awed by Jesus and, and all that he's going to be for us then and there, we can begin to live profoundly different lives here and now. And I think it, it really, what, what we have kind of, I think, slouched into often as Christians is, is taking this for granted, taking this reality that we can look to the profound realities that we have before us in Scripture, and we can, in beholding this beauty, really be transformed in in fundamental ways. I think that happens often because in in beholding beauty and looking even to what we have in Revelation 21 through 22, we're in some ways bypassing our, our minds and we're beelining for our hearts and for our wills. And that's not to say we're not thinking about what we're reading in Revelation 21 through 22, but there's a sense that when we behold something beautiful like this, when we see Jesus on the throne, it excites our hearts in this really profound way. And so as Christians, we wanna take this avenue into account, that we can behold beauty, that we can glimpse Christ in all of his glory, and that it can fundamentally transform us. There's really a need for this, for us to look to Christ and to be transformed. And so with all of that on our minds, that that case being laid out, we arrive here in Revelation 21 through 22. And so what what do we wanna do with our our remaining time in these verses? I really have a simple aim, guys, a simple aim for us this morning, and it's that I want us to see three realities in these verses. I want us to see these realities, that, that God will dwell with us, that God will be our temple, and that God will be our light. I want us to, to catch this vision that, that there is something incredibly beautiful about who God will be for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And I want that to really transform the way that we live our lives here and now. And so really what we see in Revelation, this entire book, though there's been many theories and ideas about what this book is trying to accomplish Verse 1 in chapter 1 of Revelation tells us that the whole book centers on Jesus, that John, the, the writer of Revelation, is being given this revelation from God as he's deserted on the island of Patmos, and he's getting a glimpse into heavenly spiritual realities all throughout the book, but at every turn, this revelation that he's being given a glimpse into is centering on the person and the work of Jesus Christ And in a very real way, in verses 21 through 22, we see kind of this climax of the revelation that John is being given when he turns his attention towards what Jesus is about in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the first thing that he's about, this first reality that we wanna look at and that we wanna be awed by this morning is that God will dwell with us. Look in verse 3. Reading that again, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We've seen in our, in our series, kind of walking through the storyline of scripture, that fracture happened in Genesis chapter 3. That, the, that God dwelling with man was disrupted at the fall, that man's disobedience caused this disruption. And so there's been this separation. And we see that, that throughout the story of Israel, there was always God's presence for the people, but it was God dwelling in a particular place at a particular time. We saw this in the tabernacle with the people of God as they, as they journeyed from place to place without a home, sojourners, Maybe they were in Egypt, they were on their way to the promised land after being exiled from Egypt, but in all these cases there was this tabernacle where God would would meet the people where his presence would come down, but it was never experienced on this wholesale kind of level. It was experienced by by those who who were serving as priests who would go into the tabernacle and who would make sacrifices for the people. And then once they found themselves in the promised land, they were then able to build a temple. Which is this place where God's presence would now reside, where He would dwell with His people. But in all of these these cases, God's dwelling with His people was confined to this particular place, to the tabernacle, to the temple. And then we see that that in, in Christ's coming, the way for God to dwell with us is opened up. We see that in Christ's coming and that His going to the cross, the way. To to dwell with us is opened. That he's no longer confined to to this tabernacle or this temple. That he's he's made atonement. That he's he's bridged the gap that exists between us and him, as as one who is holy, us as those who are sinful and and as disobedient. And so we see here kind of the, the fullness of that. We see the fulfillment really a picture of what the fulfillment is actually going to look like, that that he will be intimate and near with us, that God will dwell with us, that he will not be one who is alienated from us, that he will not be this God who is aloof, unconcerned, but, but rather, even in verse four, you go on to see just how intimate and how near and how concerned God will actually be when he dwells with us in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and he's said to be one who wipes every tear from the eyes of the saints, one who reminds them that death is no more, that there's no more mourning, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, for the former things have passed away. He's intimate, he's near. No longer will we have to be those who are sojourning east of Eden after being sent out of the garden, but we will arrive in this new heavens and in this new earth where God will once more dwell with man without any interruption, without any disruption. And, and I, I so appreciate how intimate the language gets there in, in verse four particularly the idea of God wiping away tears, which is not something that one does to a stranger when you see them. This is such a picture of God's care for his redeemed people, that he will wipe tears from from mothers who have lost children, that he will wipe tears from the eyes of children who've grown up without fathers, and he'll wipe tears from those who have suffered great hardship in this life. An intimate picture of God dwelling with us, made possible because Christ has come for us as we've celebrated in Christmas. And so this, this shows us uh, something that I, I want to zero in on in particular, which is that, that we will at times feel as if our, our souls have been abandoned by God here in this life that if we're honest with ourselves, we will feel abandoned by God at times in this life. But we must remember, if we are Christians, that what is ultimately true is that that God will dwell with us because Christ has come for us. And so this is a reality to look at and to be awed by. Secondly, we we see that that God will be our temple. Look in verse 22, in, in chapter 21 where John says in this vision that he's receiving, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What would it mean for there to not be a temple anymore? What would that, what would that actually mean? It would mean that, that there is no more need for a, a place for the people to go to make sacrifice or a particular place for the people to go and to worship with the other redeemed why? Because they now dwell with God in his presence. And so there's, there's no more need for a temple because there's no more need for sacrifices, zeroing in on that in particular. We remember from our series in Hebrews, in chapter nine and 10, we have this incredible picture of Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus as, as the one who sacrifices himself, the one who, who sacrifices himself, he suffers on our behalf so that we can be brought back to God. And in Hebrews 9 through 10, there's there's this incredible language of Christ being our great high priest who takes away sin and separation fully and finally. And he does that by entering into the holy places that existed in the tabernacle and in the temple once for all. And so Jesus, his ministry of being our great high priest, our mediator, making an appeal before God that we are his because we're covered by his blood, this removes the need for a temple. So God will be our temple in the new heavens and the new earth. No longer will we need to gather together with the redeemed saints in a particular place, but we will exist with them eternally. This is incredible news for us, guys, that God will be our temple, that Christ has served as our sacrifice, as our mediator. And then thirdly, this, this other reality that we can look at and that we can be awed by in a way that provides transformation in our lives here and now is this idea that God is gonna be, he's gonna be our light, it says. God will be our light. 21 verse 23, it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And in 22, verses four through five, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. John's having this, he's getting this vision of of God, of the glory of God shining so brightly in the new heavens and the new earth that there is no longer need for particular aspects of his own creation, that the sun and the moon are no longer needed in this new heaven and new earth because Christ himself, his his glory is shining so brightly that it exposes all of the darkness, that it, it drives away all darkness that may exist. This is a profound picture because we see light brought up so often throughout the scriptures. We see in Timothy's, in Paul's writing to Timothy that, that God has talked about as one who dwells in unapproachable light. We see this picture of, of light driving out darkness, of exposing the works of darkness, of light being that thing which purifies, of light being that thing which illuminates. But here, all of that kind of comes to a head in the new heavens and the new earth. And we see that, that Jesus that he serves as our light in this way that illuminates everything for us, that that is going to illuminate uh, even our glorified bodies as we we enjoy those in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we celebrate at Christmas, this reality that the, the light has dawned in Christ. And we see here at the end of our Bibles that this light that has dawned in Christ will never grow dim. That the light that has dawned in Christ, it, it will never grow dim, but we will enjoy it forever more. And this is something that we long for. I feel like that, that theme continues to come up, this, this idea of, of longing. We talked about it in Genesis 3, that we, we long for shalom. We long for things to be put right And I think in the same way, we we even, as we think about these things of God dwelling with us, of him being our temple, of him being our light, these are things that we long for. We long for darkness to be driven away, for evil to be be cast as far away from us as possible. And we see that in our savior, in Jesus himself, in the new heavens and new earth, that is the reality that we will stand in and that we will enjoy. And so in all of this, in Revelation 21 through 22, we see fulfillment in Christ. We see that there's been these types, these symbols even all throughout the scriptures that we've had, we've had the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple, but now God dwells with us. We see that we've, we've walked in great darkness after the fall, and yet the light of Christ has shone at Christmas and it will never grow dim as we move in to the new heavens and the new earth. We no longer have to live in the shadows of these things, but we can look to Christ, who will serve as the fulfillment of these things, the reality itself. And these are realities, guys, that we can anchor our hope in. These are realities that we can anchor our hope in. We don't have to fear uh, th- this accusation that I think can be leveled so often, which is that, that there is some risk of being so heavenly-minded that we're no, of no earthly good. I think it's ultimately, it's it's an unhelpful characterization because there's this reality that that the more heavenly-minded we grow as Christians, the more steadfast we become in our own pursuit of Christ here and now. As we look to Christ then and there, we can become so much more rooted in our walk with Jesus here and now. And so let us anchor our hope in these great realities. God, guys. Let us look at and be awed by this reality that God will dwell with us, that he will be our temple, and that he will be our light. In Luke 9, 51, as we we think about Jesus and his earthly ministry, it says that, that he set his face to Jerusalem, that he steadfastly moved towards Jerusalem in his ministry, not afraid of the death that he was going to suffer And in this same way, my encouragement for us is that we would set our faces towards this new Jerusalem, that this new heaven and this new earth would be on our minds, and that we would move towards it with a steadfastness in our lives, that we would steadfastly look to the sun in all of his splendor as we see it laid out here in Revelation 21 through 22, that we would be those whose lives are ultimately transformed here and now, from beholding the beauty of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus, then and there. And so we we live now between these times. We live now in this already not yet, where we wait even for this new heavens and this new earth. And so we we still feel very intensely this, this idea that even with our brother John at the end of Revelation 22 we're still in this state where we're crying and we're praying the words of Revelation twenty two twenty. 20. These words have come, Lord Jesus. Bring this vision to pass. Bring us into this new heavens and this new earth. Finish this story that you are writing. Bring us home to yourself. But let us see that even now, in between these times of Christ's first coming, And in his second coming, when we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, we still have work that we can be about, which is this work of beholding the beauty of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth and seeing how that transforms us in our own living here and now. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, Lord, That you have not left us to wallow in our sin, in our disobedience. God, we thank you that you have not cast us out, God, as those who have chosen our own way time and time again. But God, to the contrary, you looked upon our helpless state. And you saw fit to seek us out in Jesus Christ. And we have had this incredible privilege of celebrating that reality as we've considered your first coming when Christ entered the world in an out-of-the-way town and suffered on a Roman cross so that we might be made right with God, Lord. And we now live in between that first and second coming and we grasp for hope in this world, Lord. But the reality that we have before us, even in your word, is that we need not grasp for hope, but we have it in abundance. God, in one of the most profound ways that we have it in abundance is as we consider what this new heaven and this new earth will be like. God, we confess that these truths are hard to wrap our minds around, Lord, that they are so high and lofty, and that our gaze is so muddled and mired in just our everyday existence, Lord, that it is hard to think on these things, Lord hard to grasp them fully, Lord. And so would you illuminate our minds, God, to understand, to sense how how profound this truth is, God, that you will dwell with us. God, we will not fear silence in our prayer lives, Lord, as if we are not hearing from you, God, but we will see you face-to-face, converse with you. We will celebrate, God, what you have done to bring us to yourself at the cross as we think about you being our temple, Lord. God, and we will no longer live in any sort of shadow land because the light the glory of Christ will shine and expose all darkness, Lord. Lord, we need this vision to provide us hope. Lord, because we know the difficulty of life, Lord, and so would you keep this ever on our minds. Make us heavenly-minded people who consider the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you for all that we have in Christ and all that Christ will be for us if we are in him, Lord. We pray all this this morning in Christ's name.